technically my personal definition of work is kind of interesting. It's just um, something you do that you're not very interested in because if I'm interested in it, I don't personally tend to define it as work. Welcome to the future of work, the podcast that looks at, believe it or not, the future of work. It's brought to you by Wonder for their blog, Chaos and Rocket Fuel. Wonder are productivity and human behavior specialists whose goal is to help us humans remain relevant in an ever more technology-based workplace. Check them out at wonder.com. That's W-N-D-Y-R.com. I'm Doug Folks, and along with Wonder CEO Claire Haydar, we regularly meet up with industry experts and mavericks to get their take on work in the future. And in this show, we offer you something a little different. We recently had the pleasure of spending an hour in the company of Sarah Barkat, a Gen Z writer, editor and artist who has potentially a very different view on work and where it is going. Sarah loves, amongst other things, art, science and books. She's a content SEO for Tweetspeak Poetry and a writer for the Poetic Earth Month. Today we give you the chance to look through the eyes of the current generation and see how they view work unfolding. The aim is maybe to leave you with more questions than answers and to challenge your view of what is possible in the future of work. So Claire, let's start. Over to you to get Sarah's definition of work. We had to talk about work today, but I suspect that it's actually going to be in many ways a personal story in terms of how you craft your own work. So I want to throw it wide open and I want to start the conversation with what is your definition of work? I guess that's a really interesting question, almost more complicated than it seems to be at first. Like, you know, there's a lot of possible definitions of work. I mean, I guess there's the basic one. It's something you do and you get money for it usually. But technically, my personal definition of work is kind of interesting. It's just um, something you do that you're not very interested in. Because if I'm interested in it, I don't personally tend to define it as work. Interesting. So those things that you're really passionate about and that you're really interested in, what, what do you call those things? Just goals, mostly, projects um, that I'm working on, and I guess things that I'm learning or things that I'm trying to get done, like, I don't tend to think of it as work, so to speak. In that case, if that's your personal definition, do you think that that is what work is becoming, is that it is becoming a series of projects in somebody's life? I mean, for some people, obviously, I mean, the world is huge. You know, there's many different places in the world, many different social strata. There's there's a lot of places where that's not true, a lot of people for who that's not true either. So I, I don't think I can say that's what work is becoming. I mean, for some people, sure, yeah. For me, I've had the privilege where I've been able to you know, work like that. For a lot of people, that's not the case. You've, you've used the word privilege. Expand a little bit on that. Why do you feel it's a privilege to be able to work like this? Well, first of all, because that's how I like to work. And 
the the ability to work in the way that you enjoy is actually a big privilege. You know, I didn't have to work at some job since I was younger or anything. And because I went to a smaller school, I went to a state school, an art school, because I did want to be involved in the art scene and stuff. But also because I didn't want to come out of college with a huge debt. So I didn't have that thing that was, you know, forcing me or a lot of people to then go and get a job where they have to do something that pays well enough to get rid of that debt. That's a really big privilege, you know. So right from the word go, we can see how Sarah has been lucky or privileged enough to choose a path that she wants to follow rather than one that she is forced into. Sarah, I'm going to just uh, say hello and, and jump in here. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. So having taking on board what you've said around your, your thoughts of work, do you think that the world is doing work right at the moment or are we missing a beat, do you think? I don't think I can answer on the world, the whole entire world. <laughs> um, from what I've seen, you know, some people are happy with their work. A lot of people are not happy with their work. So I don't think you can either say that it's doing work right or that it's not doing work right. Some places are doing better. Some places are doing worse. And there's a whole lot of different situations. So let's narrow it down. I totally respect that you know you don't want to speak on behalf of the world and that there's nuances you know that we have to account for so the fact that so many particularly in the u.s this is very much yeah. a u.s thing um start their careers out with this enormous amount of debt on their oh, shoulders yeah, yeah. Let, let's focus in on that do you do you feel that that is broken or wrong and needs to be re-engineered like, first of all, that limits a lot of people's options. Just when you have to do, for example, a certain job that makes a certain amount of money because you've got a huge debt, um, you're less able to explore different options, you know, obviously. Like, for instance, there was one girl in college. Um, she was trying to start a business that had something to do with art and helping other artists. Um, she was really passionate about it, but she couldn't really um, focus on that to the extent she wanted to because she had another job that was taking up most of her time. It became a hindrance to, to her entrepreneurial goals. Let's move the conversation on to her views on education. Claire prompted her by highlighting the recent college admission bribery scandal you chose to go to school in a way that allowed you to focus on the educational component because of the sheer joy that that brings to you. Yeah, basically, yeah. Um, I, think, I think the educational system has always been about prestige, though, in some way, and, and about networks and about what you can get from, you know, ever since it was created. That's what a system manages to do that, for example, something that isn't a system doesn't manage to do, you know? And even if you think back to like, say earlier, maybe not formal systems of education, but even like 
in the Renaissance, maybe, if you're a apprentice painter and you wanted to become a painter, you would go, you would work in the painting studio under a, the guy who's really good at painting. And you would learn from that and you would do the small pieces of the paintings and you would get into this network and you would, that education, it was teaching you something. Yeah, but it was also offering you opportunities at the same time. You know, education has always been about opportunities. So obviously from your perspective or your viewpoint, Sarah, you're very much obviously coming from a, from an art side or creative side. How does that play out for for someone who wants to be um, a lawyer or a carpenter or... I think the same general idea would apply. I mean, again, whatever field you're trying to get into, if you know people, it's a lot easier to get into it, right? So, yeah, so I mean, that whole apprenticeship method of working, yeah. Okay, so let's cut to the chase. Are Sarah's views typical of Gen Z? Sarah... I want to move on to something quite personal. I'd like to ask how old you are. And the reason why I'm specifically asking that is the audiences who listen to our podcast and, you know, the audiences that we directly sharing this podcast with are managers and C-level executives in large companies. So, you know, some of the clients that we work with have 200,000 employees under them. And these mm-hmm. people are really grappling right now with what is what does work need to be in the future? Like, what does it need to look like? What are the environments yeah. that they need to create? And so the reason why I'm specifically zeroing in on your age and wanting to ask the question whether these views of yours can be generalized to represent your generation is because... I know that these customers of ours that we work with and who regularly listen to this podcast are asking those questions. They're asking, Uh are we looking at a generation who views work completely differently to what we view it right now? I might be answering this wrong, actually. Uh, 23, I think. I I took the (laughs) first possibility I could to forget how old I was. I took a career class in college for like a couple of credits once. And what I did notice, it was only a really small sample, but what I did notice was that the thing most people could agree on as to what they wanted from life and from their ideal job was something where they didn't have to wake up from an alarm. (laughs) So I can agree with that too. I don't think it's small. I don't think it's trivial what you're saying there. I think it is actually very deep. It can Mm. appear very superficial, but I think if you peel the onion back on that one, there's actually a lot in there. Let's unpack that. Like, I don't think it's about the alarm from from my perspective. Well, I mean, part of it is because college students don't get enough sleep. But but yeah, it's the, the idea of it too, I think. You know, getting to do something where you're not being forced to, well, consistently wake up earlier than you want to. It's the idea of sort of having a little more leeway in how you want to structure your life, I think. It's not so much a focus on what kind of job, like what the job is doing, so much as how the job is structured and what it allows for in your personal life. The reason why I think that is so pertinent to this conversation is 
that's exactly what the world of work is grappling with right now. Like we can see it in our in our audience that that's what they're grappling with because their employees have been forced into a remote virtual environment working from home because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And they're yeah. actually realizing that it gives them so much freedom and it gives them a much healthier life where, mm-hmm. as you say, they're not bound to these rigid time blocks I can see it just from, you know, the, the circles that I move in, but also just the general conversation that's happening, you know, at company level right now is that employees like it. Yeah, I think a lot do. Some don't either, especially people who like hanging out with people, like very social people, maybe even people who just don't like working where they hang out. But yeah, no, I definitely have noticed the same thing. Sarah has some great insights into how work can be improved with the background of playing. There's a lot of focus on work, a lot of focus on stuff like productivity, about what what can you get done, what can you make happen, right? And a lot of focus on that aspect of work. But I would actually say a really other important thing that is really uh, underemphasized or undervalued is play. They've actually found you're better at working, you're better at solving problems if you've played, and specifically with your hands. That makes people better at working, better at at working on the level of problem solving, of creativity. There is a book, and I don't remember what it's called right now, but they talk about how... um, Caltech's JPL Industries at one point found that the people, the new people from all the top schools were coming in and they were, they were really startled to realize that these top graduates were unable to solve the, the same type of problems that their earlier generation had and they were like, what's with this? So, so they did a study and discovered that It was because a lot of these people hadn't played, they hadn't solved problems with their hands, they hadn't like taken things apart and put them back together. They hadn't done all these things as kids. Instead, they had been very focused on, you know, scholastics and working basically for their whole lives. And so they were actually less able to solve problems later on. And so then this company decided, well, okay, we're going to we're going to focus on that even in our interview process. We're going to ask people how they played as children. I don't know if your mom's ever told you about this, but I'm like a big kid and I love to play myself, and this is a topic that I've done a lot of reading about and yeah. am very passionate about as well. So, let's go down this rabbit hole a little bit. Like what does that practically look like? So it's obvious in certain industries where play can be part of like the daily work routine, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the harder industries, like the frontline workers. How does an ambulance driver play? How does a doctor or a nurse play? Mm-hmm. How does a lawyer play? Hopefully a good job is going to allow for some kind of play or some kind of you know, moments where you're not always on and you can take a small break. If you think about what play is, it it does take place a lot of times when you aren't working, right? So one thing I just discovered recently, apparently people in the U.S. work more than in any other 
you know, what they would call a developed country, more time working. That seems really weird that we would spend so much of our time, more than we really have to even, just as a country, on work. What's it all for on a grander scheme? You know, are we just trying to do more? Like at some point, what is even the point of more? That's what I start wondering. Are you saying that the play does not actually have to be directly related to the work, but mm -hmm. it can just be, it can be something, something totally random and different, but it just needs oh, yeah, to be incorporated yeah. into the workday. So can you get practical with us and share with us how you play? Well, my big hobby is writing. So I do that a lot. I think that is a kind of play for me personally. I'm always like, well, what if this happened? Or, well, what if that happened? And I like go over things and I have fun with it. And a lot of times I also play, you know, with my sister. We make up funny stories and like we talk about them together. And that's what we kind of do a lot as play. We, we make up funny stories together. I like stuff like baking. Sometimes I like sewing, even though it also really annoys me because I'm not quite patient enough to be good at sewing. But I like finding something that I don't know how to do, trying to figure out how to do it. Another thing I like doing is just researching something random that I didn't know anything about and just seeing where it, it takes me, what I find out about it. That's interesting because when, when you started talking about playing more, um, gamification came to my mind, which is where, you know, more and more people are trying to bring maybe the habits of playing into everyday life. Mm. But I mean, that's, that's slightly different to what you're saying. You're actually saying is take a break and do something completely, you know, potentially completely different. Yeah. Well, and again, I think even for the idea of creativity, a lot of times what the creativity research pinpoints is that what makes people most creative is when they also have those spaces where they take those breaks or they do something completely different and it creates connections that wouldn't have been created otherwise. I can distinctly remember when I was doing hardcore mountain biking in Europe, it's, mm -hmm. that was play for me. Mountain biking was play for me, but mm -hmm. because it required such intense focus on something so entirely different from the business, I came off of the trails and like a whole bunch of problems that I was facing in the business had been solved in my brain without me even thinking about them. I think gamification is very different to play. They're two totally different things. No, for sure. Yeah, I, I can see that. I mean, really gamification is just trying to make, make work more fun. So you're not doing something different, you're still working, but you're trying to gamify it so that, that it's a bit easier or comes naturally or... Mm. It became apparent that she had a need for self-sufficiency and this reflects on how she would like to leave a legacy. You're going to be passing something on to the next generations. What are the, what are the skills that you would like to pass on to future generations? The skills I would want to pass on, cooking, and sewing. Cooking and sewing. Why? Yeah. Why? Because they increase your self-sufficiency. And I, I personally, that matters a lot to me. So, you know, if you can cook, you have a lot more options. First, even so much as like what you can get 
for what money. You're not stuck with what somebody else made for you. You can choose what kind of stuff you like. You can also choose stuff that is better for you. And you also just have more options. It's something that opens a lot of options with some very basic skills. Same with sewing. It opens a lot of options as to like, you don't have to just buy clothes or a bag or this or that, whatever you want. You can also, on the one hand, maybe you can make it. On the other hand, even if you can't make it, if you know a little bit about it, it'll be easier for you to pick out. Is something well made? Is it gonna last? Stuff like that. Okay, so you've been very specific with us with two skills that you want to pass on. I think what I love about what you've just said is that it's the skills of self-sufficiency. Like you've specifically called out cooking and sewing as two of those, but more broadly speaking, it's self-sufficiency. So if we were to generalize that, do you believe that those are critical skills that current generations are not learning? I do think so, yeah. And in fact... I remember Sonia, my sister, telling me she was in uh, some club at college and she was like, yeah, there's like 15 people there and they got to talking about something, ended up talking about cooking. And it turned out that Sonia was the only person in that entire club of 15 people that actually knew how to cook. I found that really surprising and and really too bad, you know, because again, that means these young people are, their options are a lot more limited. They're forced to take just what's on the shelves, you know. They don't even know necessarily what's going into that food and they don't have a connection to it on a basic level of like, just if they're somewhere random, you know, what can they do? They, they have less at their fingertips with that. Sarah has some great views on the concept of speed versus slowness. So from our side, what questions are Clara and myself not asking you about work? What, what should we be asking you? Maybe the idea of, I guess, the conception of speed versus slowness. I think that's an interesting question. Like, why do people value speed and is that always the best, like, is that always what's necessary in a certain arena? I think that's a really interesting question because a lot of times you get thinking, you know, like, I'm doing it fast, I'm getting it done, and then you stop thinking about, well, why am I doing it? Or even, does it need to be done in the first place? Or even, you know, is the product that I'm putting out worth putting out into the world Is it going to help people or is it going to maybe even make things worse for some people or is it just totally irrelevant to people? Sarah, sorry, I'm kind of hesitating because what you've just said is is actually really profound and, and really deep and my mind is just like mulling it over. How do you apply that, that slow versus fast in your daily life? Like how do you balance those two things? I definitely like working fast at things. I can work fast and I like seeing things get done. That makes me feel really happy. But part of the the thing I try to keep in mind is before I start a project or if I'm thinking about a project, like, am I going to 
put my effort into this. I, I, I really usually try to take a moment to think, should it exist? Can I think of a good reason why it should exist? And if I can't, why am I doing it, you know? Yeah, I guess that's that's what I think of. Personally, I like to write for fun. So a lot of times I'll write something. I'll get a story started and I'll want to race to the end of the story. But somebody's not quite working with it. So I've learned, even though it's kind of annoying sometimes, you know, like, sometimes I'm like, all right, I've got to take a break from this story. You know, I've got to let it sit there. One time I, I left a story sitting there for a whole year, you know, and I was just like, I haven't quite got what needs to happen next. And I knew that if I pushed through it, I could probably get something, but it wouldn't be the best thing and it wouldn't be quite what I wanted it to be. And I had to wait and think about what do I want to happen next in the story and, and let that all sort of coalesce by itself. And then when I came back to it, I could write it. And I was like, yeah, I figured out what I want to do here. Mm, that is very interesting. I'm just trying to think how you would translate that into everyday work, where if someone's an employee and they're being told pretty much, you know, they have a job and they need, as you say, they have to produce something or they've got a certain amount of um, productivity, how you can use that mindset and that thought pattern to help. Yeah, that's harder and that gets into, you know, like what is the specific job too. But I do think if just thinking about the concepts, for example, the concept of, of slowness or of taking time, people who, for example, people who meditate are happier people. Even just taking a moment or a small time to take time can help even if it's, I, I don't have something more specific to say, but I do think that allowing yourself to slow down sometimes can absolutely make things richer and, and lead to just um, more personal fulfillment in a way. Even just like taking a walk outside and then just like standing for a moment and looking at you know, like what's growing? Are there any flowers up today? You know, something like that. If I look at how we function as an organization, I think that's the power of sprinting in many ways and having that like daily check-in or that daily stand-up because that is a form of slowing down in order to go fast. You know, you're getting, you're working in these two-week sprints you're allowing the team to take time to slow down, to plan, to think about usefulness, to question um, relevance, etc. And then at the end of that two-week sprint, you're allowing the same space again because you're doing a sprint retro. So you're allowing them to reflect on what worked, what didn't work. That is a type of meditation. You know, the way we do the daily check-ins, like one of the things that we insist on in the company is that people write down a happiness it's so interesting to see, you know, how people genuinely resist it when they join our company for the first time. Like they, they actually find it really difficult. Whereas with Tracy and myself, because we've been doing it as individuals for literally our entire working life so far, like, I mean, I'm coming up on almost two decades of this already. It's just like my happiness list is longer than anything else that I'm writing in my check-in because there's just so much that I notice, you know, 
I think what you're saying is vital and it is critical and it is something that businesses should think about. And it literally can be as small as, you know, bringing in a daily check-in or bringing in a different type of channel into Slack or things like that. But I think where it does get tricky is again, you know, if I go to some of the examples that I listed earlier in the call, like a frontline worker, an emergency surgeon, an emergency room surgeon, you know, it's, it's hard to go slow when you've got a dying patient on the operating table. And again, like some of that can happen just by not within work, but by having more time when people aren't having to work, they can incorporate that themselves. I do think it's interesting. The thing about you were saying the two week sprint followed by, uh, I think that might be hard for me, that sort of structure, not because that's not a good idea because it is, but mostly because a lot of times for me personally, I things get done not necessarily in a certain these two weeks. If I know a project has to get done by this date, it'll get done sometime in that date, but not necessarily in those two weeks that's going to match up when you're supposed to be putting the effort into it. And I think, you know, going back to your earlier point around the context, so like you kept saying, you know, I don't want to speak for the whole world. And and it's so relevant that you're saying that because context is so important there, you know, there's the work of an individual contributor Mm -hmm. and there's the work of a team member. And both of those have very different cadences. Yeah. And we're going to end today with a chance for Sarah to speak about her latest project, the graphic novel, The Yellow Wallpaper. Yeah, I, I illustrated the yellow wallpaper. I turned it into a graphic novel. The reason I did it, I started it quite a while ago, actually, then just got the first page, put it aside, and then went back to it and finally actually did it. I started it because I'd always liked the story. I'd always found it really interesting. And because I was somewhere where I was really bored. So I was like, why don't I write a story, uh, illustrate a story? about someone who's really bored. <laughs> that was <laughs> that was where it started. Yeah, I found that it was really, really fun to get to hopefully interpret this story through pictures in a way that I did try to really stay true to hopefully the, the author's vision and how she seemed to be portraying this story, you know? No, I can totally imagine. But I just, I love that origin story that you've just shared with us. That is like (laughs) classic. Like, I'm bored. Let me go and find some work to do around boredom. (laughs) Yeah. Talk about intuition and like listening to your body and (laughs) all of those things. Sarah, it's been so good chatting to you today. Thank you for taking the time. I know an hour is a lot of time to ask of somebody, but it was really good and I know that this is not the typical type of podcast that our audience would typically find in their stream but I know it's one that's really important for them to listen to because I know that they're grappling with this right now and so I know that your words and the insights that you've shared are actually going to be really valuable. Well I hope so and thank you so much for having me. Such wisdom and insight resting on such a pair of young shoulders. We really hope that this show has helped you see work from a different perspective. If you've enjoyed it, 
We look forward to inviting you back sometime soon. Just a reminder, for more information about Wanda and the integration services that they supply, you can visit their website. That's WNDYR.com. And so, as always, from me, Doug Folks, and Chaos and Rocket Fuel, stay safe and we'll see you soon.